Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever in the world you are. Yes, it is Wednesday. And I'm here with James Valiant, and we are keeping it real. Once again, reading questions from Leonard Peikoff's collection, keeping it real, discussing his outstanding answers and the values, the values that flow from that. And in that context, I'm very excited to say that today's episode is sponsored by this October's, uh, sorry about that, folks, this uh, episode of Keeping It Real, I apologize for that, is being sponsored by the Resuscitating Romance Conference coming up this October. We're going to be telling you more about that later in the episode, but we are proud, happy, overjoyed to be sponsored by that conference. This is going to be good. And it's perfect because today, James Valiant, you have picked questions about, well, living the dream in terms of career, in terms of productivity. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. James, how are you doing today? Quite well. Happy Peak Off Wednesday. How are you doing, sir? I could not be better, other than this little technical snafu that I ran into. Things <laughs> could not be better because I am living the dream. I have done everything in my life to have the kind of career that I wanted. Now I'm kind of entering the third phase of that. If you are a young person watching this episode, we are going to talk about, well, what does it look like to get your career off the ground and to to live that dream. If you are in the middle, if you are living your dream, living your career, or maybe you're not exactly where you want to be, I hope you'll get some ideas for getting that back on track. And if you are, like some of us, hitting your second career or even third career, a little bit older, give you some direction there as well. James, you picked some great questions. One of these we've discussed before, but we're going to talk about it a little bit differently today. I want to see Super Chat. We're sponsored by Resuscitating Romanticism. This great conference is going to happen in October, but your super chats as well will support the Ayn Rand Center UK. Put them in. Make your questions stand out. They deserve to stand out. I know we've got a couple of people who already want to ask you a few things today that they've mentioned on the socials. So let me jump right in. James Valiant, Leonard Peikoff, was asked, I have always pursued values passionately. I love this opening. You think, well, this doesn't sound like somebody who's going to have any questions at all. Good said, start. <laughs> my goal, hmm, my goal has always been to prove to myself my own efficacy in as many realms as possible. Oh. Now. Oh, that, that's, that's quite an ambition there. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that reads a little funny, doesn't it? Okay, so uh, this is a multi-part question, but Leonard Peikoff says, I'll stop right there and ask, what is your goal? To prove to yourself your own efficacy? Well, it means you are governed by self-doubt. You're pursuing a value, not because it's good, but because it will show that you are not bad. Well, that is not a passion for values. And James, I think you caught that too right away in that opening question there. I'm I'm going to prove to myself that I can be efficacious in all these different areas. Set that whole formulation, prove to myself. I mean, as in a probably as an admirer of Ayn Rand, they didn't give the more common formulation, prove to the world, prove to those guys, which I hear so often from non-objectivists. I guess this is the more objectivist way. It's still an error, obviously, but it's the more objectivist way, prove to myself. But still, aren't you saying that I'm feeling inadequate in some way? I need to demonstrate something to myself that I, I'm not yet capable or worthy of something. It is a statement. If you really have to be comprehensive in your <laughs> improving to yourself, I could do anything. 
then what you're doing is you're assuaging a lack of self-esteem, it seems to me, rather than focusing on your highest value, your most intense passion. Um, and there's a big difference in approaching values that way, uh, the one to the other. Uh, it's not that we cut off these other values and they don't exist, but uh, why are you proving something to yourself? Uh, why not do what really gives you the greatest rewards, gives, because they have the greatest challenges and gives you the greatest enjoyment? Um, that's the sort of thing that you should be focused on rather than trying to prove anything to anybody, including yourself. In fact, it's almost more disturbing that you say, I'm trying to prove to myself. You'll never really, and if you have to go through all of these passions to prove to yourself and efficacy in all of these different areas, consider just how desperately low your self-esteem is actually needing to be fed. I need to prove that I'm a mathematician. I need to prove that I'm an artist. I need to prove that I'm a ballet dancer. What? Really? All those things? <laughs> you need to prove it? Wow. Yeah, it, it's... <sighs> It gets into that question of bravado, kind of cockiness, strutting your stuff. I want to prove that I'm good at everything. I, I can almost appreciate the intention. And it's good because Leonard Peikoff goes on. Oh, yes. Says, the, the questioner continues here. This has caused me to dilute any efforts and not have any one particular career. <laughs> it's like right away he's saying, what was wrong with my question? <laughs> he says, I spent years writing an opera. Years studying the stock market to make money. Years in an intense fitness regimen. Is it self-destructive to pursue many different disciplines like this? And Leonard Pigoff goes real quick here. Yes, I would say it is because you cannot grow, achieve, or give your full mind to any of them in brief temporal spurts. You have to, as is often said, distinguish between a career and a hobby. Well, eight hobbies are not a career. <laughs> you have no long-range continuity in your life. A passionate value cannot coexist with the absence of a career choice, which is the center that makes the passionate values possible. Now, that was interesting because I thought, yeah, you, you, you could do all that. You should do all these different things. You should manage your finances. You should be involved in fitness. But then Dr. Peikoff explains, yeah, you, you can have multiple hobbies, but that's not a career. Well, and I think, you know, the, a couple of the examples here, uh, physical health and fitness and financial well-being are absolutely things that everybody needs to consider. <laughs> no, not everyone needs to spend a year composing an opera. <laughs> okay, opera composition may not, may not be an essential for everybody. But you know something, to some extent, we have to attend to our health, don't we? I mean, we don't have to be Olympic athletes, for gosh sakes, and consider the amount of dedication it takes to be a professional athlete or to be the best at, you know, to strive to be absolutely the, you know, the finest you can do in that field really dev takes devotion. It takes, it, you really have to kind of turn it into, at least for a period of your life, into a career. Um, similarly, uh, <laughs> I would have, you know, health is non-optional. We can all, whatever our careers are, take the time to do a little exercise to make sure our diet is proper so that we avoid certain health issues, things like that. One can stay relatively skinny and relatively in shape, uh, relatively energetic, even to my age of about 60, <laughs> and still have something else as your career. Let me put it that way. Um, and uh, money, of course, we have to take care of our financial well-being. And But I don't have to, if you want to be a billionaire, 
if you want to be the CEO of a company that's doing some amazing thing out there, you're going to have to devote yourself to that. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be as rich as you can. It's a wonderful thing to want to be as rich as you can. But if you really want to be super rich, you're going to have to make that your devoted career. Now, again, we all have to feed our families. We all have to survive. And in fact, we'd like to be comfortable and have the nice things in life. And I think, again, with health, I think that one, giving up the proper amount of attention to that aspect of life, one can be financially secure. Uh, I, know, I know the economics and politics of our time make that a little dicey sometimes, but I think one can attend to one's health, one's finances, and still have a primary passion, a primary career. Um, one doesn't have to be a financial advisor, Jonathan Honig, a hedge fund manager, in order to be financially comfortable, any more than one has to be the greatest athlete in the world or a professional you know, NBA player in order to be in relatively good physical health <laughs> and please your doctor when you come in for your, your checkup. Oh, you're doing pretty good, Mr. Valiant, for your age. That's all I'm looking for at this point. But the point is that we need a balance of values in our lives. We need a whole bunch of values. Life is a complex thing. Now, if you do seriously have multiple passions, boy, you know, we've heard the other side of that in some of these programs where people say, I'm having a hard time finding a passion, a central purpose, something that really turns me on, something that gives me challenges and rewards in this creative sense of using my mind. I don't know how to find such a career. I don't know how to find such a passion. Well, that's a little sadder state, it seems to me, than the person who's overwhelmed with values. And you know something, despite what we said in the first question, I am more sympathetic with this person who's got too many values on their plate that look attractive. There are a dozen careers I think I could have gone into and been having, maybe not as happy as the careers that I did choose to be in, but my God, the world is filled with so many amazing values. When a great art, I'll give you an example, what a great art historian like the late Marianne Suarez taught me how to look at a painting, my appreciation for painting and sculpture just went up enormously and I got excited about the value of art. Did that mean I was gonna be an artist? No, but did that mean I was going to let the value of art not be an important part of my life? No, I could still be a lawyer. I could still be, you know, people would say I'm a bit of a workaholic lawyer. You know, gosh, Jim, you're spending so much time, time devoted to your career. Guess what? Even in those conditions, I still had time for art and music and fun and trying to keep myself healthy and trying to keep my bank account, my checking yes. account balance. Because guess what? We need to do all those things. We can have right. all those things. But ha not having a central purpose, not having a, a focused career, the thing you love to do most, really does affect your entire hierarchy. And uh, that is what's going to set the conditions, uh, I think, for having the most in life, is that hierarchy of values. Right. Now, you, you mentioned the word balance, and I always try, whenever I hear balance, I always try to think integration. I don't just want to balance my career with my hobbies, but I want to integrate them. And I'm glad that you mentioned art and Marianne's surveys and, and so many aspects of aesthetics, because I really want to encourage folks to, to check out our sponsor for today, this Resurrecting Romanticism Conference. It's coming up in October. Well, let let me read their spot, but I, I could not more 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 enthusiastically recommend this. Please join us this October on the beautiful campus of Converse University in Spartanburg, South Carolina, for a three-day immersion in romantic music and the visual arts 
as noted objectivist artists and intellectuals celebrate some of the greatest artworks from the 19th and the early 20th centuries. The keynote speaker will be Dr. Harry Binswanger, and he will be joined by nearly a dozen distinguished objectivist art and musical experts. Please visit our website for full program details, ethospg.com. That's E-T-H-O-S-P-G.com. Ethos Publishing Group, ethospg.com. This is going to be a great conference. I don't care if you're a plumber. I don't care if you're a brain surgeon. I don't care if you're a lawyer. I don't care if you're an electronics engineer. I don't care if you're selling books at a local bookstore. If you can, whatever your passion, whatever your career, that value of art, think about it. This is just a three-day conference. It's intensive. It'll give you a whole new appreciation of art so that when you do look at art, and see, because that isn't your full-time job, but when you do have that time to really get that spiritual value that art can be, you really want to be guided by experts and get the most out of that, uh, say, limited portion of your life that that's uh, in. But you don't want to leave that value out of life. I couldn't imagine. Yes, of course, I was a trial lawyer. I loved doing that work for you know, almost two decades. I did that work and I loved it, loved it, loved it. But did I have still have time for art and music? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's so many values in life, so many wonderful things to pursue. It, there's just too many books for me to read. There's too many, too much music for me to listen to, too many movies for me to see, too many places for me to visit, too many wonderful people for me to get to know. I have to prioritize. We all have to prioritize. And that's all that means. That doesn't mean that we don't have a dozen other wonderful values in our life and that we don't enjoy the entire rich banquet that is existence. We just need to focus. Uh, it's really hard to have more than one or two real serious concrete goals because to do something right and to do something properly and to get the, the real rewards from the challenge of it, you have to devote yourself. You have to devote yourself kind of like an expert and you can't do that part-time and you can't do that just on weekends. But you know, there's all these other values you can do on weekends. Uh, don't, don't, don't say that a central purpose leaves any of that out because uh, the full life requires all of that. Right. I feel like we could do a whole show just talking about this conference coming up. We've got folks involved in the Ayn Rand Center UK who are going to be part of this conference. Shoshana Milgram and Lee Pearson. Of course, Harry Binswanger is going to give the keynote address. But some of the great artists and people involved in music in the objectivist community, Sandra Shaw is going to be there. Stephen Seek is going to be there. I'm especially looking forward to David Barry, who's been interviewed a couple times. No, not the comedian. The, <laughs> the professor of musicology has a new theory of music that he believes explains even further. We've all been grasping for how does music do what it does. Right. Professor Barry has an idea about that. He's given us some teasers, for example, on Lee Pearson's show, but he's intentionally held back until resurrecting romanticism, until this October conference, October 7th through 9th. Damn, that is going to be good. But yeah. I... I okay. I wanted to put that out because you don't want to miss that, ethospg.com. And I intentionally put it after our third question here without giving you the answer. Again, Leonard Peikoff's questioner continues, well, I want to be creative and rich. And this, at the same time, how can I do it? Wow, that, that's kind of asking a lot, isn't it? Yeah, you want to be creative, 
rich and thin. <laughs> okay. yes, I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And there's nothing wrong. Like I, you know, it's that I have to confess. It's on this side that I have more sympathy than the person who can't find any. There's so many wonderful things in life. Yes. There's so many. You know, there are other careers that I think I could have pursued and enjoyed those careers. I picked the one that I thought would be the most rewarding for me in my context. And I think we have to do that. Uh, but man, oh man, there's so many things in life. I mean, life is such a rich banquet. Once you taste a little bit of these different fields, you begin to realize that there's really no limit to that kind of ambition in terms of the values we can have in our life as opposed to say the central value, the thing that's really gonna be the focus of our expertise and our greatest accomplishment and our greatest sense of accomplishment, that requires focus. Yes, and, and yes, so, so let, me, let me read Dr. Peikoff's answer here, not too long. He just says, well, I think you have to prioritize. It is fine if you want to be rich, but your career, your chosen career, well, that should be primary. Then be rich if you can. Unless you want riches so much that you choose a career that you like, but that brings you money. As for being thin, I don't see that you need a career to mm. be thin. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, um, a close quote for a moment, Dr. Pigov, that these values, they're not mutually exclusive. And in some cases, they're not even related. But, right. but don't we all throw that in there? I want to be rich. I want to be thin. I want to be famous. I want to be. See, no matter what your career was, I would say get some exercise and eat properly. You want to be as healthy for as long as you can. You want to live as long as you can. You want to get the most out of life. So we all, like I say at the beginning, uh, the, the we all have to attend to some degree to our health and to our financial well-being. Uh, we, I mean, no one owes me anything. I have to take care of myself. I have to support myself and my family. I'm not going to ask anyone for that. And so I have to be financially well enough for my needs. And Peikoff points the thing here to the thing here, the hierarchy of values, the prioritizing, as he puts it, of values. And that's the difference between, say, balance, because balance might suggest you need a little of everything. But no, 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 no. What you need is a clear hierarchy of values. What you need is a clear hierarchy of values. I, I come to a point when I'm working so hard, say, writing or doing podcasts so many, many times, I need some spiritual recharge. Hey, let's go to the museum. Let's go to this new exhibit. Let's go to this concert this weekend. That'll be my spiritual recharge. I'm not throwing away the value of art and music. Quite the contrary. I'm building it into my life so that it can be part of the spiritual and emotional fuel that keeps the rest of it going. Um, best way I have of putting it. Yeah. And in the rest of Dr. Pigoff's answer, he, he's going to point out that there's there's a real psychological component to the way this question is asked. And I almost wish that Gene Maroney's uh, essays on thinking on paper, you know, a very effective form of brainstorming, were available to this questioner when this was asked in October 2011. Leonard Pigoff says, you say your other value is to be creative. Well, that is not a value. That is empty in this context. It's not like a passion to do this or achieve that. As you worded then, well, there's no way to achieve it. Now, if you find a career that you really want, like in opera or whatever it is, well, then you are being creative. But creativity 
is not in the category of richness or thinness, both of which are concretes that you can go after. You should ask yourself why you have worded your question this way. I think that's the key to your problem. Unquote Leonard Peikoff. Couldn't agree more with that. It's, it's, I there want is, to be creative. In what way? What does that mean? What well, does that look like? Thing. There is no, well, look at Ayn Rand's understanding of thought itself. There is no real thought that is not creative. So whether you're a historian trying to discover new truths about, say, the ancient past, or whether you're a physicist trying to find out the secrets of physical nature, or whether you're a, you see, the, the, there is creativity to be found in, it's true that to really do the job properly, it requires creative thought. Any decent job requires creative thought. There's no such thing as uncreative thought in the objectivist uh, understanding of the word thought. Um, so the question is, if it's a, a valid, productive career, yes, of course, we want to be creative. We want to be at, we want to at least be as creative as we can be within that field. But that's not telling me what your passion is at all. That's just telling me that whatever that passion is, you want, you want to do it as well, as well as you can. Okay. Right. But the point is, uh, yes, be, it's as, let me put it this way. It's as broad as the virtue of productiveness. Uh, so of course you want to be productive. Of course you want to apply a reason to your career. Of course you want to put thought into it and, and be just as productive and efficient as you can. But that doesn't tell you what your value is, what your passion is, and that'll depend on your particular context. What's objective for you, Mr. Naser, and what's objective for me, Mr. Valiant, may be two totally different things because of our personal context, our psychology, our experiences, the thing that excites us the most. And that's what you should really be looking for you should be looking for what turns you on most, what gives you the greatest challenges and the greatest rewards because of that. That's the kind of thing I'd be looking for. What do you enjoy the doing of? You see, Howard Rourke wanted to be a great architect. That was his passion. Of course, he's going to be the most creative architect of his time because he's so rational and so independent and so devoted to that passion. <laughs> but creativity is a description of all of that once he's found his passion. A prerequisite is having that passion. Right. You make a great comparison there. It almost sounds like it has some content. I want to be super creative. Okay, well, it, but you're right. It's like if somebody said, well, what do you want to do for a living? I want to be super productive. Okay. okay, that's a good, that's good. <laughs> what, what, what that? It's empty, as Dr. Pigoff said, it's empty. It doesn't tell me about what you want. Yeah. It tells me that you just want to be moral. You want to be rational and productive. Okay, you want to be moral. Okay, now tell me about you. What drives you? What gets you up in the morning? <laughs> yes. Yeah, and hey, more power to people who want to be creative and productive and moral and all of that. What does that look like? What does that look like? Right. So I love the clarification that comes out of an unclear question. Yeah. Because we catch ourselves, I certainly catch myself doing that, being a little over abstract sometimes. Oh, yeah, I, I can occasionally do that. Yeah. Yes. I, <laughs> I've had that thought in terms of, I want to be a musician. Well, what do, you, what do you want to do? You know, do you want to write songs? Do you want to play rock and roll? Do you want to learn a classical instrument? Well, you know, I love music. I want to be a musician. <laughs> I took so, 12 yes. years of piano lessons, my friend. 
and I have got pretty good. But what those 12 years of piano lessons also taught me was that if I wanted to be a concert pianist, a pianist, a professional pianist, a pianist at the, you know, at the tour level, I would have to devote myself hours of practice every single day, stretching myself more and more and more. And I thought to myself, do I want that to be most of my life? Do I want that to be my full-time job? Okay, I appreciate great, and look, I, no one is more melted by Vladimir Horowitz's piano music than I am, okay? I appreciate the great pianist, but that wouldn't have given me the same kind of joy that my, say, creative work that I was doing in law or in history was giving me. I knew that that would give me the greater joy. That's what you really have to focus on. I can still listen, by the way, to the recordings of Vladimir Horowitz playing Chopin and Rachmaninoff and still get blown away. Yeah, I'm curious, too, and you know, maybe I'll have a chance to ask this at Resurrecting Romanticism, because there are, there are musicians who do music that I can't imagine doing, in particular being the member of an orchestra and playing a part. And I know the pride that comes from being able to play a part without mistakes, even though I've probably only done that a few times. <laughs> but it almost feels like a role, like an assembly line job. Now, being a soloist, being a Horowitz, then I can see you would experience the passion of the music as you play it. But I'll be interested to ask somebody, and there are going to be several people at that conference who would know the answer. What is the uh, passion that comes from just playing a role, from playing a part in an orchestra? First triangle. <laughs> First triangle. <laughs> it's funny because one of, one of my favorite uh, friend of ours, uh, who's a percussionist in the orchestra, and these are small community orchestras, but she's all over the stage. She's playing that triangle, but then she's over here playing this massive oversized, like, like a bass drum. And then yeah, she's the over on the vibes drum. playing the xylophone. Right. And, right. Yeah, that would be the one be, job be I actually think I would like. Kind of fun, wouldn't it? Because there are a variety of things from the timpani to the big bass drum to the uh, triangle, you know? <laughs> that would be a fun job, the percussionist, right? Yes. And it reinforces the point that it all comes down to the content. What are you actually doing? What right. do you love? Now, let me right. jump. We, we did three questions right. and one there. So I'm going to jump to question number four. And I'm not seeing any super chats. Great comments going on in the chat. I don't see any super chats yet. We are on the Ayn Rand Center UK. And we need you. Yes, you good people watching, listening to this program. If you're listening afterward, and yes, most of our watches and listens happen after the fact, well, then it's easy for you to help us out. Become a member of the Ayn Rand Center UK at aynrandcenter.co.uk. Or you can even use the super thanks feature, like the super chat. But after the show, you can hit that, put a couple dollars on the show, and it shows up in the comments. And we do appreciate those. I do read those afterward, and I especially like the comments that come in and any thanks that you give. But I would love to see a super chat or two or maybe three in the chat. So if you're watching, if you're listening, if you've got a couple dollars sitting in your PayPal account or whatever you use to finance YouTube fund, make that happen for us. And let us know if you've got any comments, any questions for James Valiant or me. Let me jump to question number four, though, because I wanted to get to this. Is a person immoral? Now, this, you know, all the questions that begin this way, a little bit heavy there. Is yeah, a person immoral who learns to work through easy means that's not the whole question but you remember james we talked about this a couple times there's this expression of paying your dues and some people take that to mean something kind of malevolent like there's an artificial hoops you've got to jump through if you're going to make it 
I've always taken it more as, you know, take what you want and pay for it. But it's funny that this comes up in this question. Is a person immoral who learns to work through easy means? Would that person's life be less happy or of less value? And you see, now I understand the objectivists who say, Robert, you shouldn't talk about paying your dues. That's malevolent. It's artificial. So Leonard Peikoff, let me give the beginning of his answer, but I want to hear, you've got a look on your face that says, I want to hear what James Valiant's got to say about this. Leonard Peikoff starts off by saying, if easy means simply, well, that it's not painful or agonizing, but it's still demanding. It still uses your mind. It still involves growth and achievement. Well, then it's great that you can do it easily. Now, that's just the start of Dr. Peikoff's answer, but I can see it. You're thinking a lot there, James. What's on your mind? Well, my gosh, you know, <laughs> When I mean, you get good at something, it gets easier and easier. And you can you focus on the higher skills involved, the higher elements involved. Let's go back to like piano playing. You know, I, you know, there comes a time you just practice one little thing and one little thing, and it's hard to do. And then finally, there comes a point where you make a breakthrough. And suddenly, all you have to do is give your hand the fingers that command, do a trill. And it automatically happens. One day, it becomes automatized. Learning learning any skill is a constant process of automatizing that is making easy some earlier stage of the skill or the practice or the or the understanding of it it gets easier and easier the, the more you do anything in one sense and in fact looking for easier or more efficient ways of doing something is a way of actually making the product better giving yourself more time to do this creative aspect of it making you know there's all kinds of benefits to efficiency and ease and ease. That way you can focus your real efforts, your concentrated efforts on the cutting edge of where either your skills are or the knowledge in the field is. But you've got to, you've got to get there by steps, my friend. And it's a process of steps whereby what was challenging at one point now becomes easy. So when someone says, make it easy, it's not the ease that's making it immoral at all, nor is it the agony of the effort that makes it virtuous. No, it's the productivity of the effort that right. makes it rewarding. And if you look at it that way, you, you, you can see where the problem with the question really is. Is yes. it immoral to give myself an easy break on something? Wow. What kind of self-lashing are you doing to yourself where I have to work like a slave and be devoted to it? It's got to be agony and hard, or it's not, I'm not really being virtuous about it. No, my friends. I you know, it was really tough at first to be a trial lawyer. It's not an easy job. You have to learn a hundred different skills and a thousand different rules, and you've got to get some practice in there to do it well. And in order to do that, it took me time and effort. But there came a point where those things, cross-examining the rules of evidence, all became automatized, and it became easier and easier and easier. So I could push myself to higher and higher levels of challenge in that regard. But the point is, I loved it all. Even when something became easier to me, I still loved that process. It was still an enjoyable thing to do because it was part of this wider process. Now, am I not giving myself new challenges? I think that would be an issue, but I'm not going to agonize over, is it the, do I need to take on this challenge? Would this really help me as a trial lawyer to develop this new skill or this new knowledge? And uh, I'm not doing it to become a martyr to some cause. I'm doing it to enjoy my life and get the most reward I can out of what I'm doing. Um, so the challenge is 
let me put it this way. The challenge is only as great as my unique ambition in it is. So in other words, I'm selfishly motivated towards that challenge. It's not agony. It's not going to be misery. Now, I tell you, if you want to take on all these other fields, if you want to write operas, be a ballet star, be an NBA uh, forward, you're going to have a real challenge in that regard. It's going to be impossible. You're going to be frustrated. That's part of the necessity of focus here as well. So there does need to be focus. You do need to be pushing yourself. I think it wouldn't be very rewarding if you didn't have a job where you were finding ever new challenges, at least for me. I needed to grow constantly. I needed to become better and better at what I was doing. And that gave me an intense sense of pride and feedback. Boy, I got that down now. I know how to do that. Oh, wow. And now I'm going to build that in because now I've automatized it. It's easy to me now. And so I'm not going to discard that thing that's easy. No, I'm going to build it in now all the more because I'm a master of it. And I can make it part of my repertoire. Um, I don't judge it by the difficulty standard. No, 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 no. Judge it by the rewards to you standard. Well, I can't argue with any of that. In your case, I would have thought you would have brought up the hard part wasn't getting used to doing what you were doing, but getting through law school and that after achieving an undergrad degree in philosophy. <laughs> I don't know. I guess that's the part I think of as paying your dues is, is doing law what you school do. was, was a quarry. Law, well, but I mean, there were certain things about law school. I knew they were teaching me that I had to know. Uh, now, they don't teach you how to be a lawyer in law school, interestingly enough. They teach you how to read law, think about law. There's certain clinical aspects of the practice of law that they teach you, but you really learn how to be a lawyer once you start being an apprentice lawyer. And that really was fun for me. But, and to one extent, I, 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 there was definitely a sense in which I knew there was knowledge that was being imparted to me that was necessary. So even though it was difficult, even though it was a dues-paying thing in law school, I had to devote myself the first two years, the third year, they bore you to death. This is all saying the first year, they scare you to death. The second year, they work you to death. The third year in law school, in American law school, they bore you to death. And boy, that kind of was my experience in law school. So I did regard it as paying my dues. Um, that, you know, taking that three day bar exam, there's a morning and an afternoon session for three days in a row. By the time you're done with day two, you don't even remember how you did on day one. That stupid occupational licensing bar exam was definitely paying my dues and just getting ready for that stupid test. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, the, that, however, is more like practicing a pian the piano. That was acquiring the necessary skills and knowledge set in order to do something. Uh, and if there's a, if you enjoy, if you're looking forward to the goal, if you're looking forward to the practice of it, it takes away a lot. See, there were a lot of people in law school who just lost in law school because that's what they wanted. You know, their parents wanted them to do, or hey, it looked like a, the thing to be is a lawyer. They didn't really want to be lawyers. They were just it, that was a, just a job that would impress their parents or their friends or something. And you could tell the difference. I wanted to practice law. And so the learning of it was itself not, not near so painful as it was for a bunch of other people around me. I could see it was just agony for them. And I said, well, don't you want to know this? Don't you want to build this into yourself so it becomes part of the practice of law? It also takes away part of the pain when you have that goal in mind. Not saying it wasn't difficult, not saying there wasn't a lot of effort, because there sure was. And I sort of, those first two years, I had to really focused just on law school. I had to separate personal values, took a back seat and they really did. 
uh, you know, uh, my dating life or something, my, you know, having fun with friends that took a back seat while I was de devoted 24 seven to the first two years of law school. Yes, major effort, major work. But even that was enjoyable because I knew there was a goal in sight and it was train. It was the training wheels to get me to ride my Harley in the desert. <laughs> uh, excellent. Excellent. Let me read a bit more of Leonard Pigoff's answer, and then I want to jump to a super chat question that just came in specifically for you. But Leonard Peacock did say in regard to finding it easy, some people cannot and some can, and some are split. For example, I always found teaching easy in the sense that I had to think and grow and all the rest of it, but it just came naturally to me. There was no agony or suffering involved in it. Well, I think that was great. And you could even make a case that I should have lived my whole life that way and enjoyed it. Writing, on the other hand, I hate. <laughs> Again, this is Leonard Bigoff answering, and he's, he's mentioned this before. It continually makes me miserable. The best that it brings is escape when you go to sleep. If I had to write each podcast, I would come up with maybe one every six months, as against just talking it off, as I do now. In that sense, then, you can find a profession or different aspects of it, easy or difficult, but there's nothing whatever wrong with finding it easy. If, however, easy means you can do it without thinking, and there's no effort, and you're working at a level way below your mind, or you're like a scientist, but you're spending your time copying figures into a ledger, well, then certainly you have a lessened life. Not lessons, but lesson, like less of a life. Certainly that's not moral if productiveness is a virtue. Living below, unquote, living below your abilities. That's interesting to me because yeah. I've had periods where I felt like I was doing that. And then afterward, once I got more ambitious, I realized, yeah, yeah, that, that period of my life should have been better. I should have been better. Well, that's it. To a virtuous person, that's how it's going to seem. I'm, I'm just, and there certainly have been moments in my life where I thought, you know, I'm not doing what I can. I'm not doing what would be fulfilling to me. If I don't exercise that muscle, I'm feeling out of shape. It's not, I'm feeling unhealthy in a way that I'm not growing, that I'm not developing because, you know, there are so many values in life. There are way more values, as I say, than I could possibly enjoy and appreciate in one lifetime. You know, hopefully one day they'll triple the life expectancy of humans and we can enjoy triple the values. <laughs> I'm looking, that would be a wonderful day. I, I, day humans should look forward to at least for their descendants, I suppose. But the fact of the matter is there are way too many values for me to uh, really appreciate in any one lifetime. Uh, it's not a question of, uh, let me put it this way, having enough on one's plate. I sympathize, like I say, with that first questioner. There's so much that I want. I could imagine m multiple careers that would be rewarding for me. But if you think about it, they they're rewarding because they would provide certain challenges. And if they didn't provide certain challenges, they wouldn't have the same kind of rewards. And we have to push ourselves. We have to apply our rationality. As I say, rationality in objectivist terms is creative thought. If you're not using your brain, if you're not really using your brain to the best of your ability, you're just not going to, it's like, it's, you know, that weird feeling when you're used to working out and then you don't work out for a while and you just feel weak and weird and almost depressed physically because you're not doing the physical exercise that you used to do. There's something like that with the mind too. 
I absolutely think there's something like that with the mind. It's like your mind gets sluggish and kind of slow and, you know, it's not really, wait, 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 I've got to get the, I got to get the calisthenics going here. I've got to get this working. I've got to apply this. And, and sometimes I'll even find myself artificially applying it. I almost think sometimes people play games just to do that for an artificial application of their, because I want to exercise just to see the exercise of my reason in operation, push myself and thinking whether it's chess or bridge or whatever game you play. And some of them could be intellectually challenging. Uh, but the, let me say that a lot, I've seen a lot of people put that in their career precisely or in their hobby, like chess or gaming, when it, they're not getting it in their career. So let me suggest that if you're not pushing yourself, if you're not thinking, using your creative reason in your career, you're not getting the rewards you can from it. You're not getting the joy, the thrill, the happiness you can by pushing yourself. And more than that, this, this consciousness of ours is like the muscles of our body. It needs exercise to be in health and to feel fully toned. Um, no question about it. Excellent. Now we have one more question that Leonard Pigoff was asked on this subject. But we have a super chat that's entirely off topic. And because Frank was good enough to support the ARC UK by putting this in, I'm going to read the question and you let me know if you want to put some time into this. I would love to hear your answer. And I'll tell you why once I've read the question. A science fiction magazine, this is fantasy and science fiction, so a big magazine, has rescinded publishing a story by an author whose background is a British fascist. So this is, a, he was actually a member of the UK National Front. Oh. Yeah, pretty bad. The story itself doesn't promote fascism. And Frank says, it is hard to get published. They should look at your work, not your background. Many of us have done things that we regret. Uh, James, tomorrow I'm going to do a show, my Thursday Life on Earth show, entitled, When the Hero and the villain are the same guy. In other words, what happens when one of your heroes is a, is a mixed case and has uh, aspects of his life, his personality, his virtues, or his vices that you don't approve of? And so it's interesting to me that Frank asked this question. Well, there, there's a science fiction author. He had a publishing contract. The magazine found out that he had a shady background and dropped him. And, and Frank thinks that shouldn't happen. I don't know that oh, I can agree with him there. So I what do you think? I mean, the publisher is a private organization and they're, they have every right to have their own set of values and standards. And if they don't want to promote someone who advocates racist nationalism, then uh, it seems to me that they're perfectly within their rights to screen the people for the values that they simply cannot sanction in their magazine. It's their private property. It's their voice. They don't have to publish someone uh, they disagree with, even if the content of this particular story, I'll assume that what you're saying is true. The content of the story in no way touches. Now, I just have a little proviso there. It would seem hard to me to isolate. See, I, I, the mind is an integrating thing. It would seem hard to me to isolate that. Let me suggest there might be deeper philosophical, moral messages, subtler messages that in there that may be affected by this guy. And, you know, it takes a while to really fully understand what a story is saying. And they just may not want to take a chance with publishing a story because of this guy's other ideas. They have a right to do that. 
Now, if you wanted to, to publish a magazine and you bid it, and frankly, if I did this magazine, I would do it like this. Big fat red warning, even if it was the best short story ever written, I have to publish this short story. I'd still have a big fat red disclaimer. You know, this guy was a, right? And I would say that. I do not, we are not approving or sanctioning anything else, this guy, just for an exercise in looking at this story. Even if I were to publish that story, um, I think that it might, be fair to come with a warning label, but journals, websites, they're private property and they have every right to, to say, in fact, I would think it would be wrong for them to sanction certain ideas and they get to have standards and get to exclude authors because their ideas are too pernicious for them. Um, that doesn't take away from the value. Let's assume again that the story it truly is completely free of any implications and even completely free from maybe implicit implications we don't, uh, uh, implicit implications, implications that we don't currently see, latent implications that we don't currently see. Let's imagine there's none of them. The short story itself, the model for all future short story writers. Even under those circumstances, <laughs> the value of the short, it's like listening to say to, you know, someone says, well, should I listen to Wagner? You know, the opera, uh, famous German opera composer. Well, he was a vicious anti-Semite and a very unpleasant man. <laughs> but does that take away from the value of his music, whatever it is? Now, I happen to think that he did, he sent music starting in a bad direction, subtly, but I also find a bunch of his music very beautiful. Uh, so, he can have that mixed effect on me. Wagner's music is mixed, but does it change the value of his music that he was such a monstrous anti-Semite and, <laughs> and a horrible, rude man? No, it doesn't really. On the other hand, if I was, say, publishing music, would I want to focus on that? Could I have that as a screen? Sure. Sure. It's your private property. It's your values. And you, the owner of that, publication have to make that value assessment for yourself. Okay, we're going to publish this. We're going to say, uh, in fact, we'll publish an essay uh, by Wagner on music. And I'll put my little warning label. Oh, you know, he had other opinions. Don't be, you know, blind to Vog the whole of Wagner. On the other hand, the value of Tristan and Isolde is the value of Tristan and Isolde as music, isn't it? Yeah, I, th I think that all... Uh... It all makes sense to me. It's interesting that it's it's easy to say, well, this big corporation or this small publishing company or Facebook or Twitter or X.com, here's what they should do as a platform or as a publisher, as if there's nobody running the place, as if there aren't people involved, as if the publication, Fantasy and Science Fiction, is somehow this isolated entity out there absent of people running the thing and right. running the thing the way they think it should be run right. and with their values intact. They get to have values. They get to have ideas. They get to have standards for their publication. In yeah, fact, they have to like the publication that had no standards. In fact, the higher the standards, the better the standards, the closer the standards to mine, the more I'll appreciate the publication. But that, but that's private property. They get to have their own standards. Uh, yeah, but I think it's more than it's their right. I think it is right. 
that their values inform the publication. Otherwise, they could walk out the door, some other group of people could come in, run it according to this set of rules, and AI could run the place with no values, no aesthetics, no and nothing to differentiate this magazine from the next magazine because we all just publish whatever science fiction happens to come in. Great point. I, I get that in this case, there's an issue because they did like the story, they did contract it. There was a change of mind because of those other things, but those other things are part of the context. You can't say, well, you should run it as if you're not there, as if you don't have values, as if there aren't people in charge of this because it's this magazine entity publisher. And I realize now part of the question might be to me because I'm a lawyer. I'm not assessing the contract. It could be that there was a contract involved. I don't know. There could be a binding contract that was signed between this author and the magazine and wherein they promised, you know, where there was consideration on both sides and there's a real contract and you can take them to court. And say, I don't know. That's the, a question of uh, what the magazine promised and contracted uh, from the writer. So there could have been a contract violation. And I don't know the details here to give any kind of opinion on whether there, there was a contract violation. There could well have been. There could well have been. But if the question is, can magazines filter for those kind of standards? Absolutely, and they should. Like you say, it's a great point. It's yeah. right to, to filter it through their values. <laughs> Very right, it's moral. The only moral thing is to filter it through your important values. In fact, you're doing it immorally if you're not filtering your publication through an editorial perspective that filters it through your important values. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, of course, since you mentioned values, I, I've just I've just got to mention this one more time. Folks, if you're not already planning on it, add it to your calendar, Resurrecting Romanticism in October of this year. Please join us this October on the beautiful campus of Converse University in Spartanburg, South Carolina, for a three-day immersion in romantic music and the visual arts as noted objectivist artists and intellectuals celebrate some of the greatest artworks of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Our keynote speaker will be Dr. Harry Binswanger, and he will be joined by nearly a dozen distinguished objectivist art and musical experts. Please visit the website for full program details, ethospg.com. That's E-T-H-O-S-P-G.com. Damn, oh going to be good. I I cannot once more recommend something like that more highly to you. I mean, you will get such value. Your appreciation of art and music will just increase so that the time you do devote, whatever role that plays in your particular life, the time you do give to art and music will be much more efficiently spent. You'll get much more emotional oomph from that work of art so that when you do uh, include art and music and all the other values you want in your life in them, you'll get more out of them, whatever time you have to devote to them. Yes, and I should point out, as our producer mentioned in the chat, there is an early deadline if you want to save some money, a substantial amount of money. Yeah, I used to wonder, why do conferences do that? But it lets them plan. They can plan resources, plan the amount of attendance, make sure the rooms are right-sized. If you register by September 1st, so day after tomorrow for the Resurrecting Romanticism Conference, you can save $200. That's a serious chunk of change. It can be spent on some fancy dinners while you are down there in Spartanburg. So definitely take advantage of that, folks. And let me jump to question number five. Let me get back on track. Frank had a great question there. And again, I'm going to be talking about that tomorrow afternoon. But Leonard Pigoff was asked, and I like this question, 
My main hobby is long distance running. And the training regimen is exhausting and time consuming, but I get a great thrill from the competition of the marathons and the sense of accomplishment. Now, I compete several times a year in different parts of the world. Is it advisable to have a hobby requiring so much time and effort for such concentrated fun? Now, that's the question. You know, James, it made me think of your 12 years studying the piano and how, you know, you could have had a performance every year or maybe a couple times a year, but that's a, a lot of hours to put in for, as our questioner says, concentrated fun, you know, training for one event. Right. And you might think, well, maybe you should think twice about that. But right. Dr. Peikoff, Leonard Peikoff starts off his answer and says, well, I would say if you can afford it, go ahead. <laughs> the amount of effort involved in a pursuit is not the standard of whether you should pursue it, but the value of the results. You have to decide that according to your hierarchy of values. And there we get it, the hierarchy of values. That's the key here. What kind of a reward are you getting from it? How much does it mean to you? And, um, you know, and if you can maintain a career and still you know, go around the world a few times a year and do, do these marathon type races. Well, more power to you, more power to you. If that's really, I mean, I, and I know, I have to confess here, I find running extremely boring exercise. You, you'd be surprised to, <laughs> nogging, I find enormously. So I like finding a nice place to do my outdoor exercise with beautiful like scenery i can at least look at if i'm doing my power walk or my run or something through that area I, I, I that's not rewarding to me but i've met people who just are devoted to it they are complete they were lawyers really good when i was a da i knew many attorneys and judges who loved to run they would do the charity runs they would do the local marathon runs they do any kind of run that they could get there and you ask them what do you my gosh you're so devoted to you're a good lawyer you're a great trial lawyer and that takes a lot of concentrated effort and they'll still say yeah but the concentrated effort when i on sundays when i'm out there doing my run gives me such feedback and the physical release from tension from being a trial lawyer, that the combination really worked out for them. And were they devoted to it? These people were, I mean, they are 2% body fat people, okay, <laughs> who could outrun me in a heartbeat. Uh, so uh, there's no, if you get that kind of reward, if, they, they, if there's that kind of um, pleasure, enjoyment, stress relief feedback that you get, uh, as well as the health benefits of uh, from running, why not? The question is how valuable is it to you? It can still be an intense hobby, can still be part of a very career-directed life. No question about it. Excellent. Now, now there are some caveats here. Leonard Pigov does give more of an answer here. He says, well, the big question your letter raises is that the running sounds more like your career than your hobby. Or do you really have two careers? Well, you give it so much time and importance, and you say nothing about what you do otherwise. Ah. But it seems to me the effort is misplaced if you have a career that is your real passion. Well, in that case, you are cutting down seriously on your growth, your achievement, your success in your chosen career for your hobby. You're completely inverting the concepts. Well, maybe notice? in your hierarchy, running is your career. And if so, pursue it as that. 
Don't right. just run and finish the race, but think of different kinds of races or books on races or, or what you can learn about racing or how you can tie it to other sports or how you could train. Immerse yourself in the field and grow and develop. And then he wraps up like this. He says, it sounds to me that maybe you don't know what you want and you have some sort of career that you find easy to leave for a hobby that you like, but you sort of feel guilty about the amount of time. You ah. have to decide which is primary and which is the hobby, or even whether you should have a hobby. Sounds to me like you're trying to have too much. Well, you notice what Leonard did there. He gave the first answer. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with having a serious hobby. If that's in your hierarchy of values, sure, sure, sure. But you notice Leonard Peikoff has such a sensitive ear. This person did not say what their career was. They called yes. devotion their hobby without mentioning anything else, without mentioning. They're not talking about finding the right, you know, uh, relation balance. Let's use this, use that other word that we use the balance in the hierarchy between a really serious hobby and a very serious career, because where's the career in the question? Leonard zeroes in on the wait a minute. All you seem to care about is this what you call a hobby, which you're intensely devoted to. Well, and you don't even mention your career. Well, wait, 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 wait. maybe your career should be that running, my friend. If the hobby is that intense, then like Leonard says, devote yourself, study it, get into all the aspects of it. Make that your career. Make that your career. You're going to have to make a decision. And maybe the thing you're doing, you know, to put bread on the table uh, is not the thing you should make your career. Maybe that should be your hobby. <laughs> Maybe that's the thing you should do on Sundays. And the rest of the time, you should be devoted to your what is your main passion, your career, uh, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, it does. And I, I totally get that. You know, Dr. Peacock's not saying that's what he's doing, but given the way the right, question Right, right. But if, <laughs> because he doesn't want to have a career. The guy, he, Leonard has a sensitive ear to these questions. And it's like, okay, that's your hobby. Okay, hobby, hobby. Well, then what is your career? Because it would seem to me that you'd bring that up if you were talking about a, a career passion that you really actually had. Sounds like this hobby is your passion, my friend. Then get into it. Don't worry. Do what gives you the greatest rewards and joy. Absolutely. Right. Yes. And, and I love that he's he's focusing on that. If it sounds like, well, he sure is taking these concepts seriously. Well, that's taking values seriously. That's taking life seriously. So I very much appreciate the clarifications Dr. Peikoff gives, oh, even yeah. when it seems like these are casual questions. They really hit on something important and, and help us stay focused on what our, what our hierarchy of values is. That's the key concept here. Keep your hierarchy of values straight. Your own personal values, your career values, your personal relationship values, and all the other values you want in life, art and food and going on a vacation with you know, a long weekend, say, with your wife. You, you, a good life, I have to agree with Aristotle here, a good life has got all kinds of components. The happiest kind of people are people who are filling their lives with all kinds of rich values. And that is not a contradiction to having a central focus, a central purpose to your life. Uh, in fact, the one helps the other. I find that when we concentrate ourselves on a task or at most two tasks at a time, we then can free ourselves to enjoy, in effect, clear our minds, have that moment of refueling where we can enjoy art, music, 
whether it's athletics you're doing, whether it's whatever. I mean, there are, like I say, the world is filled with thousands of values, more values than I will ever, ever get around to truly appreciating. And in the face of that, I simply have to prioritize what appears to me to be the, the values that I'd get the most from. Yeah, I'm sure our young listeners say, oh, no, I've got time for it all. But, you know, at mm. our age, being mm. very similar, yes, memento mori, and, uh, you know, everything is finite. So, yes, there it is are important. More that... books uh, than I will ever be able to read, more good books than I will ever be able to read, more films than I'll ever be able to see, more places to visit than I could ever visit, more wonderful, interesting people than I will ever get to know. Yeah. I'm sorry, I have to be kind of ruthless in the way I filter things. And that's, that's key about having your values, not only your moral values straight, but your personal values straight. And having that hierarchy of values is the critical way of allocating our precious time uh, on this planet. Yes. And ruthlessness is a good word. You have got to be ruthless with cutting out not just disvalues, but lesser values if they're keeping lesser you values. from what you really care about, because that too is a sacrifice. Speaking of sacrifices, there is no sacrifice from Nick Bruno, who is in with a generous super chat and says, thank you. Thank you, Nick. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Supporting the ARC UK. Now, James, under values, you mentioned books. Here's a book for you. Identity, Tribalism, uh, Politics and Tribalism, The New Culture Wars by Nico Satirikopoulos. Well, we're not going to have Nikos on today, but you are going to be talking about today's tribalism. You know, our side, our side can do no wrong because they're our side, whatever with the facts. But no, that's going to be a great show, which means we need to wrap up. You've got less than half an hour to get ready for that. After that show at the Daily Objective at, uh, I was going to say 1230, that's Eastern time, 530 UK time. But right after that comes the reality show. Uh, several topics in the show, but the headline topic is religion falling behind. Uh, we could pray that that would be the case, but that's going to be a great discussion as well. And if that's not enough content for an outstanding Wednesday on the Ayn Rand Center UK, yes, this week, it's time for Lee Pearson, who is on the cutting edge. He's always on the cutting edge every other week, every other Wednesday. And the title for his show today is, Is Everything Physical? Well, I think matter, energy, uh, but it turns out, well, there's going to be some great insights that you need to hear on that show. <laughs> and then Absolutely. tomorrow, tomorrow we do even more with the Daily Objective, with the reality show, with my show, Life on Earth, in which I'm going to try to give Frank and a few more folks uh, more ideas about what to do with these mixed heroes. James, yeah. it's been a great I'm discussion. I'm not going to miss your show tomorrow, uh, Mr. Naser. That sounds like it's going to be a really good one. No, we've got great programming, folks. And if you really do appreciate the, the, the programming that we do here, the sheer volume of work that we do here uh, that I find absolutely fascinating. I find absolutely interesting all the stuff that I don't participate in. I learn and grow from. Uh, if you feel the same way, if you find these conversations important, if you think it's important to create a worldwide community of students, serious students of objectivism, then consider becoming a paid subscriber to the Ayn Rand Center UK. We are really doing important work. And if this is a value, consider the value for value here uh, because you guys keep the lights on around here. So thank you. 
You do. Thank you very much for joining us. One more shout out to the folks at Ethos Publishing Group. Go to ethospg.com, E-T-H-O-S-P-G.com to see the information on the Resurrecting Romanticism Conference. There are going to be people there I haven't even mentioned because they're not official, but just folks who are attending, you are going to want to be there. Do not miss that. James, James, thank you for another outstanding discussion. Looking forward to doing it again. Thank you, my brother.